there are so many people out there spreading what I believe to be a lie. Um, the lie that God hates certain people, whether it's because of, you know, who they love or it's because of their gender identity or it's because of, you know, the color of their skin or whatever. Um, to me, the minute you say God hates and then you the next word in that sentence is a person or a group of people, that's a lie. Welcome to the Babel Podcast. I'm your host, Paige Brees, and I am so happy to have you here for some raw and real conversation. People say you should never discuss politics, money, or religion. Well, not here. This is a safe space to dive deep into how religion as a whole has affected our hearts, our minds, and our world. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. We all have a seat at the table, and I invite you to sit with me as I talk with religious leaders, experts, and friends alike. So, without further ado, let's babble. Alrighty. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for pushing play on another episode of the Babel podcast. I am here today with Bob Erian, who is a Lutheran pastor. Uh, he serves in Lebanon, Pennsylvania currently, uh, but he has just informed me he's about to change to a new call um, over in, was it Lancaster? Lancaster. Mm -hmm. Lancaster, PA. And Bob is uh, like I said, a Lutheran pastor, but he's also very active on TikTok. Um, I'm going to link his TikTok handle down in the show notes for you if you want to follow him after our conversation. But he is a very open book about speaking to how the church as an institution and just as an organization has sort of failed to represent the body of Christ uh, as he understands it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. And so, Bob, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm glad to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Bob, I would love to, I would love to just kind of start with what you mean when you say the church has failed. Um, I know it's kind of a very broad question, but as a Lutheran pastor, someone who sees it kind of from very much the inside looking out, what does that, what does that mean when you say the church has kind of failed to represent the body of Christ? Um, you know, when I think of the church as the body of Christ, I, I, I take that in a very incarnational sense, um, mm. that we are literally to be the hands and feet of Christ. Um, I preached a sermon a couple of years ago on this, this metaphor of the body of Christ. And, um, I asked the question and I'm, I tend to put my congregations on the spot because I'll ask questions in a sermon that are not rhetorical and I'm like waiting <laughs> for an answer. Um, and I said, so what do we use our bodies for? And I just sort of left it hanging there. And, you know, mm -hmm. people said, well, to move, to sing, to eat, to sleep, whatever. And finally, at the towards, you know, after a good minute or a minute and a half of this, a young man in the back must have been about seven years old, piped up loud and clear. The whole church could hear him said to do stuff. Um, and I said, exactly. You know, that's what we use our bodies for. And, you know, if we are the body of Christ, then we are the institution that Christ, for whatever reason, has chosen to do Christ stuff in the world with. Mm. Um, and I don't think we've necessarily done Christ stuff in the world for um, a lot of marginalized communities and particularly for um, the LGBTQ plus community. Mm. Um, my own denomination, you know, we went through years of, of really bloody conflict over this. Um, and finally in 2009, uh, voted to allow people in committed publicly accountable same-sex relationships to serve, uh, on the roster of the church and allowed at the time gay marriage was not yet legal in all places. Um, mm -hmm. but we were allowing, uh, clergy to bless same-sex unions. Um, and then of course, once DOMA came out, that was we were allowed to solemnize uh, marriages. 
And, you know, so we made that decision as a denomination 12 years ago, and yet to this day, only 9% of our congregations are uh, what we call reconciling in Christ, uh, which Mm. is our version of open and affirming, you Mm. know, and we say everyone is welcome here. And we say that Christ's love and grace extends to all. And we say, particularly as Lutherans, that, you know, we are all sinners justified by grace through faith. Mm -hmm. And that that is for everyone. And then we put an asterisk on it in terms and conditions, you know, in the fine print at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I wonder what, how is that met? Like, how is that thought process met within other leaders of the church um, that you found? Is is there any conflict there? Do you guys agree on as a whole? Kind of how does that dynamic work with other pastors in your in your call? So uh, my experience has been that um, a a solid, strong majority of uh, pastors and deacons in my denomination are absolutely on board with mm-hmm. full inclusion of LGBTQ plus people. Um, you know, I know a few who uh, have stayed in my denomination who don't support the idea of full inclusion, but most of the folks who were opposed to it actually left for one of the splinter congregate or splinter denominations mm-hmm. after 2009. So I, I don't think the, the hang up is at the, the level of the clergy. Um, Mm. What I have found is a lot of congregations don't want to talk about it, Mm. um, don't want to have to address the issue uh, or even really think about it and react pretty negatively if you, you know, kind of push them on that. Mm. Um, And when you say congregation, you mean the people who are attending the church. Okay. Yeah. Um, And so you know, in my parish, I have three congregations, uh, three separate churches that are all part of one parish that that I serve. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to have four, um, and we had a a couple who had been lifelong members of that fourth congregation who, after DOMA was repealed, wanted to get married in their church. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who had had no problem with these two gentlemen being in their congregation and worship every Sunday, serving on council the whole nine yards, and everything was fine until they said they wanted to be full participants. They wanted to get married in their church. Mm -hmm. Um, And that congregation split over it and it Mm -hmm. became very bloody. Um, And this was in 2015 and 16. Mm -hmm. And the other three congregations in the parish, we said to them, okay, look, you know, you all know what happened in the courts. You know, that DOMA has been repealed. You know, gay marriage is now legal across the country, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're going to have to address this sooner or later. Do you want to talk about it now in the abstract, or do you want to wait until one of your children of the congregation comes and says, hey, I want to get married, and this is my fiance? Mm -hmm. Um, And of my three congregations, one was very courageous and said, let's talk about it now, because that would be a horrible thing to do to a couple. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other two said, this is going to make people mad. And we can't afford to lose anybody because we're already shrinking and don't you dare bring it up. Mm. So, you know, I think there's a lot of fear, uh, particularly in mainline denominations um, Mm -hmm. about, oh, my gosh, if we bring up these tough social issues, whether it's um, our response to the LGBTQ plus community or our stance on. social issues like racism and black lives Mm -hmm. matter. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, there's this huge fear that we might upset somebody and they might leave and take their offering with them. Mm. And to me, that's not what we're supposed to be as the body of Christ. Right. Yeah. I've, I have found in my own, you know, deconstruction, my own understanding of how my church operated, but also with other conversations I've had with people who grew up in Christian denominations in particular that so much of the tension or like the, the, to your, like what you said, the fear to speak uh, out about certain things is tied to that tithing money or tied to that offering money tied to the, the, 
funding that's coming in um, to the mm-hmm. church, which I understand. Like I know that lights need to be turned on and bills need to be paid, but that should like as a church, as a religious institution, you would think that that should never be a priority over your day to day. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some ways we are where we are with this um, because we've allowed it to happen. Hmm. Um, You know, for a long time in this country, Christianity was the default. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just assumed that, you know, everybody was a Christian unless, you know, you were surprised to learn that they were Jewish or (laughs) Hindu, but, you know, um, Christianity was the default and it was assumed that everybody, especially all good people went to church Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have folks in my congregations who can remember a day when on a job application, it would ask what church you attended. Um, really? And when that was, yeah. And when that yeah. was the case, you know, when, when Christendom was in its heyday, um, there wasn't this need to be, um, intention with the culture because we assumed the culture was broadly Christian. Mm -hmm. And when we stopped being in tension with the culture, then we got comfortable and people began to feel like, well, being a church member is about, you know, having my needs and my wants met. Mm. Um, Not about what is God calling me to do and to be in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and even that word member, um, you know, with, with the oldest generation of the folks in my congregations, um, the folks who are in their 80s and 90s now, in their mind, that word member carries the connotation of, I believe in the goals of this organization, and so I am going to dedicate um, my time, my money, my effort to furthering the goals of this organization. That's what member means in their minds. Mm. For their kids and younger, and especially my generation, the word member means, oh, I pay a certain amount of dues to this health club that I am a member of, and I then Mm -hmm. get the privilege of working out at three o'clock in the morning if I want to. (laughs) Um, And it, you know, and I'm not saying that 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 is, I'm not saying that is a judgment on the people who think of membership that way. Mm -hmm. I'm saying the definition of that word and the connotation of that word has shifted. Yeah. Um, And I think we as church have been slow to pick up on the change in the culture. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, how does that, I mean, for speaking to a congregation with such a age gap or like so many different people from so many different walks of life, how do those hard conversations go? Do you find that there is a divide in reaction or is, are people typically pretty open? How does that typically go down with them? If you don't mind me asking. Um, well, <laughs> we're, we're Lutherans. So there's two things we do really well. We eat and we fight. Um, <laughs> and, but at the same time, you know, we, we value sort of peace and comedy at, you know, at all costs. Mm. And so oftentimes what will happen is that the people for whom this is a passion issue. Mm-hmm. They'll show up for the conversation and they'll, and they'll engage the conversation, whether they're passionately in favor or passionately against. And what they generally find is that we structure these conversations and we work to structure these conversations in such a way that they are loving and respectful, regardless of where one stands on the issue. Mm-hmm. But what is much more common is for the people for whom this is not a passion issue. Um, they just stay away Mm. because that's easier and that's more comfortable than engaging this challenging issue and maybe having to make up their mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think anybody who's ever seen me on TikTok will be surprised by this, but I am one who stirs the pot. (laughs) Um, And so um, I'm a firm believer if the Lutherans won't come to the conversation, we bring the conversation to the Lutherans. Mm. Um, And so I will bring it up in sermons Mm -hmm. um, and in Bible studies. And I will also, you know, sort of like I said a few minutes ago, I'll ask that question in a sermon that is not rhetorical. And I'll let the silence hang until, 
you somebody know, says we something. start to squirm in our pews, right? <laughs> um, but like I said, I think for most people, if they're willing to just engage the hard conversation, if they're willing to take that risk, mm-hmm. what they find is that those conversations can be liberating. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be life-giving. You know, I think oftentimes we assume that, you know, oh, if I say how I feel, everybody's going to dogpile me because they don't feel the same way. And what we often find is we're not that far apart from our neighbors. Right. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And there's so, I always tend to wonder where that fear comes from. If it's just an innate survival mode of I have to fit in and I don't know if me speaking to this will allow me to fit in with this group anymore, or if it's a, a thought that's kind of seated in the back of one's brain from somewhere, from young development. I always wonder where that fear comes from that you won't be accepted or welcomed to the table if you speak to these things or if you agree with mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z thing. I yeah, and you know, I, I spend a fair amount of time thinking about that. Mm. Um, because I think that's sort of the first step in helping people to get over that fear. Yeah. Um, and some of it is um, sort of that ingrained thing about, you know, you don't talk about uh, sex, money, or politics or religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it also, uh, and I, I had a, a, a lady in one of my congregations who's now, uh, I want to say she's 91 or 92. Mm. Um, but she and I were having a conversation over coffee, uh, about five, six years ago. Mm -hmm. And she said, what you need to remember is, you know, you may be here as our pastor for five years, or you may be here for 25 years, but sooner or later, you're going to leave. And we have to keep living with each other after that. Mm. And so particularly, you know, this is a fairly small community that I'm in. It's a town of 30,000 people, but even that, it it feels much smaller than that. Mm -hmm. And then in, you know, the the smaller rural communities surrounding it, they are much smaller. And so, you know, if I have a disagreement with Earl over coffee hour on Sunday, I'm going to see him at the post office on Tuesday, and I'm going to see him again at the grocery store on Friday. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sooner or later, we're going to have to mend that rift. Or I can just keep my mouth shut and not cause the rift to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I find it so fascinating that we have this culture of it's better to just keep your mouth shut and keep peace than to discuss and debate and then build a relationship upon it afterwards. Um, I, because that was, that's a huge thing within my family dynamic. My mother, God bless her. She is an incredible woman and I have nothing but respect for her, but we do disagree on certain things when it comes to you pick it like something political or whatever. There are things we Mm -hmm. disagree on and I want to open the dialogue. I want to have that debate with her and hear where she's coming from. She can hear where I'm coming from. We can find where we might agree. Um, But to my mother, the moment she feels like I'm, coming at her or saying she's wrong. Like anytime she feels tension, that's not constructive or positive. She wants to end the conversation and stop there because I think she's scared that we'll fight too much or that we'll fight period. And I, I feel like that is a pretty common theme with, with people is that maybe they're just again, scared. um, But they, before you even begin the conversation, there's a wall up, like there's a guard up. And mm-hmm. if they feel like you're trying to knock that down, it's an immediate, okay, nope, <laughs> stop the conversation. We're not mm-hmm. doing it. I don't want to break anything or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, You know, spinning that out a couple of steps further. Yeah. I wonder if it's because so many people have so much experience of conditional love. 
mm. that that the fear is that oh no if if we go deep here if we go deep on this topic whatever it is that might break this relationship mm-hmm. and i would rather have the relationship on a sort of shallow surface level then take a chance on it moving to a deeper level of um, intimacy and communion, but also taking the chance that it might fracture. Right. Um, right. And where I see this a lot pastorally is with folks in their sort of relationship with God. Um, mm-hmm. I, I remember this was over a decade ago in a different parish. Um mm-hmm. And I was having a conversation with a woman who had been through some just really terrible losses in the mm-hmm. past year. Um, and I was kind of trying to reflect back to her what I was hearing from her. I said, you know, it sounds like like you're maybe a little angry with God. And she started to say yes. And then mm-hmm. she caught herself and said, oh, no, I'm, I'm not angry with God. And I said, are you sure? Because it sounds like you're angry with God. And she said, well, no, you can't be angry with God. Mm. And, and, and my response was, why not? You know, one of the things that, that I love about the Old Testament is um, that it depicts a very feisty and a very um, challenging relationship with God, but it's a very honest one. Mm. Um, and a very intimate one. And, you know, when Israel feels like they are aggrieved, they are not afraid to shake their fist in God's face. You know, <laughs> and they are not afraid to say, how long, oh Lord, how long, you know, I'm getting my teeth kicked in. What are you going to do about it? You're supposed mm. to have my back. Where are you? Um, and I think, you know, and I, I have said to folks, you know, don't be afraid to get mad at God. Don't be afraid to yell at God. You know, if if God can't take us yelling at, God, then we need a different God. Um, mm. I wouldn't want to base my whole relationship with God on being angry with God, but sure. you know, in any relationship, you stomp on each other's toes now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's fair game to tell God that, you know, mm-hmm. always recognizing God is God and I'm not. And, you know, God may just very well look at me and say, yeah, that's nice. But, um, but at least, you know, if I'm mad at God, God is going to know about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, to your point, it, people think that this relationship you have with God needs to be good all the time. And, mm-hmm. but that you don't expect that of any other relationship you have in your life. You know, that sometimes you get into arguments or sometimes you get into disagreements or sometimes your partner does a small thing that ticks you off and you Mm -hmm. gripe at each other. Like, so why in the world would we expect our relationship with God to be perfect? If no other relationship we have in our lives is going to be perfect. I think that people, I think people think that there has to be some sort of huge divide because it's God and um, he's above everything, which is fair, but we are, we are still human you know, to your Mm -hmm. point, God is God and we are not, if that's what you believe. And we have issues that are not always going to be good. So. Right. Um, And I, I I guess I I envision it as, and my own relationship with God is um, pretty real and pretty raw and pretty feisty sometimes. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and I, I had to grow into that um, mm-hmm. because certainly I grew up with that, that some of that same piety and that feeling of, you know, well, I, I need to be, you know, good and meek and mild and praying and, you know, mm. um, you know, God moves in mysterious ways and it's not for me to question God. And, you know, yeah. then I, I got to seminary and, you know, I got sort of forced into studying the old Testament and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> You know, you look at these guys, you know, and gals, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah laughs at God, you know, all mm-hmm. these. And and that to me, that was so freeing, this idea that um that this God who invites us into relationship is inviting us into real intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um 
to to be honest, um, you know, Israel's greatest fear in the Old Testament is not the wrath of God. Their greatest fear is the absence or the apathy of God. You know, mm. as you read the Old Testament, they have experience of God being mad at them, and they've lived through the wrath of God. What the, what keeps them awake at night is the idea that maybe God will wash God's hands and say, "That's it, I'm done with you." Mm. That's the part that's frightening for from. You know, if you can draw a broad theme out of the Old Testament, I think that's sure. one that you can draw, um, that there's much more concern about um, the relationship ending than about, you know, maybe we get our feelings bruised or maybe God gets God's feelings bruised mm-hmm. in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a much healthier way to look at things, because I feel like a lot of people when they compare the old Testament to the new Testament, they say, Oh, the God in the old Testament was this like disciplinary jerk (laughs) who just like threw a bunch of shit at his people. Um, Mm -hmm. and then they tried to throw it back and he was like, no, I can do you one better. Like, and it, it kind of felt like a constant, uh, battle, if you will, between Mm -hmm. the Israelites and God. Uh, in a way that people say, like, why was that God such a jerk? And then the God in the New Testament with Jesus is all about peace and love. Like, why is there right. such a discrepancy there? And people think that it's a bad, like the Old Testament is a bad God. and The New Testament is the good God or something like that. Right. And and, and we and I think in, in part, it's a, a sort of natural human tendency towards reductionism mm. that we reduce the Old Testament God to this God of wrath. Um, this, you know, very angry, judging, you know, mean God. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we reduce God as depicted in the New Testament, and particularly as personified in Jesus as sort of warm and fluffy and fuzzy. (laughs) And, you know, we forget that this supposedly angry, wrathful God of the Old Testament describes himself as wooing and earnestly pursuing God's people and earnestly desiring relationship. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, we forget that Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove some money changers out of some temple, out of the temple and started (laughs) flipping the furniture. Uh Right. You know, (laughs) Um, you know, where's this warm and fuzzy Jesus again? (laughs) Right. (laughs) He certainly wasn't there that day. Um, Yeah. It's something I heard a lot growing up was the righteous anger was that, Oh, Mm -hmm. that, but it was kind of spun to me in a way that like we should strive to be like Jesus is all the time, except for when he's super angry then. Cause that was like righteous Jesus anger. He had the right to be angry. You don't, mm-hmm. you should never get angry like that, but he could be angry. Um, right. And, and, you know, then you look at the prophets of the old Testament, particularly Amos. I mean, um, my my Old Testament professor in seminary had a tagline for each of the prophets, and I've forgotten a lot of them. But the one for Amos, I'll never forget. You know, his tagline for Amos was Amos was in a very bad mood. Um, <laughs> and and he is the whole book. He's just <laughs> cranky and upset. I mean, and Amos is thoroughly hacked off that he had to give up his job as a vine dresser to come tell you people to clean up your act. You know, I just <laughs> want to go back to my vineyard and my farm, but you clowns can't stop abusing the poor. So now I have to be here to tell you, thus says the Lord, you know? Yeah. Um, and Amos lets them have it with both barrels, you know? And, mm. and I think one of the things that we have to be careful of is I think that righteous anger is um, not only fair game, but it's actually what we're called to mm. um, about. We are called to be righteously angry about certain things, but it's important that we remember that, you know, Jesus anger, the anger of the prophets, the, the righteous anger is depicted in scripture is always anger on behalf of someone else. Mm. You know, it's never Jesus never particularly gets angry that they're saying nasty things about him. I mean, there's times when he pushes back and there's times when he snips back at people a little bit. But when Jesus really pops his cork, it's because the uptight religious narrow minded bigots are 
stomping on somebody else. Mm. You know, they're they're walling somebody else off from grace. That's what gets Jesus pissed off. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what gets the prophets in the Old Testament pissed off. You know, you were, you know, selling the poor for a pair of sandals. Mm. Um, You know, you you pervert judgment in the gate and, you know, essentially accusing people of, you know, giving favorable judgments to the wealthy in return for a bribe and screwing the widow and the orphan. That's what gets the prophets hacked off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's always anger on behalf of the other and particularly on behalf of the vulnerable other, the excluded other. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I think that that's a really beautiful way to look at it because. I, it relates directly to what you do on TikTok. Like, <laughs> um, true. <laughs> you you particularly call out true. people. Yeah, you particularly call out people who are claiming to be Christian but are slandering or putting down um, people of the LGBT community or um, people of color. Um, you know, you name it. If it seems like as you scroll through your TikTok, if you see it, you just stitch it and immediately go hang on, <laughs> just call them out. Um, I, I do sometimes. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my wife reminds me every so often, you know, there's a drafts folder for a reason. <laughs> okay. Hey, if, if you feel called to talk to it or talk about it, it probably needs to be said is how I think about it. Yeah. How just maybe you... not always in the way that I choose. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into doing this on TikTok? Did you just download TikTok for funsies and then come across all of this or what? How did this kind of come to be for you? Sort of. Um, I mean, deep down in my soul, I am a curmudgeon and a Luddite. Um, And so, (laughs) you know, I was sort of vaguely aware that TikTok existed. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. People are doing, you know, weird videos of themselves lip syncing sea shanties or something. Um, But my wife is very, uh, was very into TikTok. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, not like obsessively so, but she would be sending me links to videos and saying, hey, you should see this. It's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And I have two teenage daughters um, Ah. who are, of course, very much into TikTok. Yes. And they just, they just sort of kept after me and kept after me. And finally in December, um, I said, okay, fine. I'll, you know, I'll download TikTok and I'll give it a try for a couple of weeks. And if I hate it, I'll uninstall it. And that'll be the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, and, you know, I got to where I was enjoying it. And I was kind of watching stuff go by and every so often I'd, I'd make a video commenting on something like, um, I did one in, in January, right after the, uh, insurrection at the Capitol mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, I, I talked about the fact that, you know, you don't get to paint yourself as a, as a, uh, loyal American patriot and be a Nazi at the same time. Like you can't do both of those. You know, we, mm-hmm. we literally fought a war over this. The whole world came, it was in all the papers, you know, <laughs> you can be an American patriot or you can be a Nazi, but you can't do both. Right. Um, and of course, you know, TikTok muted the sound on that one. But oh, wow. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I would, I put out a couple of those every now and then I would see something and, um, and I would see things, you know, pertaining to the LGBTQ plus community or to black lives matter or to the me too movement. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, to me, the, the through line of all of those is these are the people who were Jesus here today. He'd be on the front line with mm-hmm. um, because we have a track record that Jesus spent all of his time with the outcast and the oppressed and the sinners. And, you know, every time you know, this is something my New Testament professor taught us was in the Gospels. Every time somebody draws a line to decide who's in and who's out, Jesus is always on the other side. Mm. Uh, you know, Jesus is always out there with the outsider. Um, and so I made a few of those here and there, um, offering my opinion on those. And nothing ever really took off. And I really didn't even care if anything took off. I did not wake up one morning and say, I want to be a viral TikTok sensation. <laughs> um, but what happened was at the end of March, 
um, Transgender Day of Visibility rolled around. Mm. And and this video is still up. Um, and I told a story uh, from my time in ministry here. Um, about six years ago, uh, I got a phone call from one of the local funeral directors. Um, and when you're in a place for a while, you get to have a pretty good relationship with the funeral directors. You see each other all the time and, mm-hmm. and they get to know the clergy and, and who's kind of safe to talk to and who's not. And mm-hmm. one of the local funeral directors called me up and said, um, would you be willing to do a funeral service for a young man? His family doesn't really have a church. They have a church that they were kind of tenuously connected to, but their pastor won't do the service. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was okay. They're not members on the rolls and some pastors are goofy about that. And I said, yeah, sure. sure. So, sure. Um, you know, give me the, the, the particulars of the deceased and the contact information for the next of kin. So I can call him and talk to him. And he said, well, here's what you need to know. Um, the first thing you need to know is that this young man was transgender. And I said, okay. And he said, and this young man died by suicide. Mm. And I said, okay. And he said, and I called you because I knew you'd say yes. Mm. And and then made clear to me that the reason that this young man's family's pastor said no. Sorry, I'm in my office and the phone is ringing. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Okay. Um, the reason that this that this other pastor had said no was because he was transgender mm. and secondarily because he had died by suicide. Mm. And that to me is, I mean, to me, that's the definition of pastoral malpractice. Mm. Um, if, and I, I said in the video, you know, if your theology um, tells one of God's beautiful and beloved children that they are an abomination, then your theology is blasphemous because they're created in the image of God. You know, if your theology drives someone to so much despair that they end their own life, your theology is blasphemous. And if your theology tells you that you cannot provide comfort to a grieving family, regardless of the situation of their loved one of the deceased, Mm -hmm. you know, funerals are for the family. The, the deceased, they're already safe in the arms of God. This is about the family. And if your theology tells you, you cannot give this family the comfort of a funeral for their loved one, then your theology is blasphemous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and at the end, I said, you know, and if you are a transgender person, I want you to know that you are loved and you are valid and you are precious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I hit post and that was, you know, sort of the last I thought of it. And I woke up the next morning and like my phone is vibrating off of my nightstand with notifications of people liking and commenting on this video. And I was like, and what, what blew my mind was the number of people who commented something to the effect of you're the first Christian pastor who has ever said I was anything but an abomination. Mm. You know, you're the first Christian who's ever told me that God loves me. Wow. You know, you were, and, and I get these comments, like to this day, I I get five, six of these a day Mm -hmm. from people saying, you know, I grew up in the church and and now I'm an atheist because of the way I got the hell beat out of me in the church. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, or, you know, I want nothing to do with the church because I watched the way they abused my sibling because mm. my sibling came out or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, how in the world did we so badly pervert the gospel that we think this is how Jesus would have us respond? Mm-hmm. You know, even when Jesus made the whip of cords, even when Jesus was flipping the furniture, Jesus didn't beat the hell out of people. And Jesus didn't scare the hell out of people. Jesus loved the hell out of people. Mm-hmm. And, and coming back around to where we started, if we're going to be the body of Christ, that's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, and, and that's really kind of what sort of awakened this, this passion in me and this the sense of calling for me that there are so many people out there 
spreading what I believe to be a lie. Mm. Um, the lie that God hates certain people, whether it's because of, you know, who they love or it's because of their gender identity or it's because of, you know, the color of their skin or whatever. Um, to me, the minute you say God hates and then you the next word in that sentence is a person or a group of people, that's a lie. And there are people trumpeting that from the housetops. Hmm. And, you know, my denomination, we're Lutherans, you know, we're proud, but not too proud. And, you know, we're very quietist and, you know, we're um, just good, sturdy Germans and Norwegians and Swedes. And we don't want to be, you know, we're humble. We don't want to be out there in public and what have you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if people believe that God hates LGBTQ plus people, and if people believe that Jesus would declare one of God's beautiful and beloved children to be an abomination. If people believe that, then yes, it's part of that is on the people who say that, you know, the people who are spreading that lie bear some responsibility, but those of us who know otherwise, but are so quiet that we never say it out loud in public, we bear some responsibility too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's really kind of where this came from for me that One of the greatest single facts of my life is that, you know, at times in my life when I was incapable of loving myself and at times in my life where I thought there was nothing in me that was lovable, people who are disciples of Jesus reached out to me and said, I love you and God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm going to love you until you know how to love yourself. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what the church is supposed to be, you know, and I, I admit, and I, I said in one of my videos, I was naive. Mm. I had no idea that it was so bad out there. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, I mean, I knew there was still homophobia and I knew there was still transphobia and I knew that that stuff still existed. I did not know that it was as vile and as virulent and as unashamed as it is. I mean, I would be ashamed to say those kinds of things to another human being. Yeah. You know, my dad is 75 years old and he would still take me out behind the woodshed if I talked that way to another human being. Um, yeah. I just, you know, I was not raised that it's okay to tell people stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. and there's people saying that, you know, this is what God wants them to do. And that's just bizarre to me. Yeah. And so, you know, if if there's an opportunity for me to tell one people or one people, one person, <laughs> clearly I haven't had enough coffee today. Nah. If there's an opportunity for me to tell one person who has never heard it, that they are beloved and they are beautiful and they are precious in the eyes of God. How can I not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like sometimes if not, and I think this is the way it should be, we should think about this in our heads. It's like, if not me, then who? Because yeah. you you aren't sure who else out there will take that on. And you can't assume mm -hmm. that anyone else will. If you know that you can and you know that you have the capability to, mm -hmm. then you should. Um, yep. There's you know, no reason like, to not. Like, right. You know, as, as the Rabbi Hillel said, you know, if not us, who, if not now, when, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I think we as, as Christians would do well to learn more from our Jewish sisters and brothers mm -hmm. and our Muslim sisters and brothers and siblings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also think we Protestants would do well to learn more from our Roman Catholic siblings. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because people will see, you know, occasionally I wear my collar for some of these videos and people will see that and assume that I'm Roman Catholic or they'll at least ask the question. And I always tell people I'm not Catholic, but I'm Catholic adjacent. Uh. Um, and because I have been profoundly blessed in my life by a handful of Roman Catholic priests, usually Jesuits, mm. um, and particularly by some uh, Roman Catholic women religious nuns um, mm. who 
have basically said, yeah, okay, we get that this is the doctrine from the Conference of Catholic Bishops, but this is what Jesus would have us do, and we answer to him, not them. Mm. Um, you know, when I was in the Navy, I was on a ship where we had uh, a Protestant chaplain on board who didn't celebrate the sacraments. It just wasn't his tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a Roman Catholic priest who would come once a week from one of the other ships in the task force and, and celebrate mass. And so I would go to mass and sit in the back just for the liturgy because mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't supposed to receive the, the sacrament. And probably the third or fourth time I did this, the priest gets done serving everybody else. And he's standing there at the table and he's staring right at me. And I'm like, what? And he looks at me and I looked at him and finally he looks at me very pointedly and he looks down at the table and he looks back at me. I'm like, what? So I get up and I walk up there and he says, here you go. The body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Oh, okay. So mass is over. We went and sat down to have lunch in the wardroom and I looked at him and I said, now, I don't know all there is to know about Roman Catholicism, but I know you're not supposed to do that. (laughs) And he said, that's true. I am not supposed to do that. But here's how I look at it. I know that you are from a liturgical tradition that values the sacraments. And I know that if I don't commune you, you will not receive the sacrament for six months on this deployment. Mm -hmm. And I don't see how that serves Jesus. So... If a Roman Catholic bishop ever asks you, that never happened, and I hereby grant you absolution for lying to the bishop. <laughs> you know, and I, and I, I come I back that. to that all the time. And I, that's the other thing is people tend to assume that this or that faith tradition is a monolith. Mm. Um, and it's absolutely not the, the truth. I mean, <laughs> I have been blessed to meet some radical Roman Catholics who are like, yeah, okay, that's what the Pope says, but this is what Jesus says. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's great, because I, I do think there is that assumption that when you're a clergy in a church, or if you are just really, really hardcore into your religion, that people follow the Pope, or people follow your pastor, or people follow the rabbi, and what they say and do, but not necessarily what the what God or Jesus or Muhammad or whoever um, says. So I, I, Mm -hmm. I love hearing that. That makes me smile. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, we're Lutherans. It's right there on our sign that we're a bunch of snot nosed punks who won't take no for an answer. (laughs) I mean, we we've built our whole identity around being the people who said, but why, you know, and ask questions. So I'm like, of course you're supposed to ask questions. Yeah. Questions are a holy thing. Yeah, so. absolutely. I love that. I think that's great. But why always ask, but why that's good. Oh man, Bob, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, thank you so much for your heart and your time and your just passion to speak um, on how the church can improve. Cause I think it's people like you who will really spearhead that shift and make, make the church a more inclusive place, a a easier place to be and, um, and really embody what, what Jesus and God want the church to be. So thank you. Well, thank you uh, for those kind words. And, you know, this is, uh, like I said, you know, how can I not do this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, I recognize just how much of a gift um, grace has been in my life. I grew, I was a cradle Lutheran. I grew up Lutheran, but I still mm-hmm. sort of absor- absorbed from the culture that whole um law and judgment thing. Mm-hmm. And I was always kind of convinced that, you know, God had his finger poised over the smite button in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, um, at the times in my life where I needed to hear a word of grace, there were people there to speak it. Mm. And now it's my turn. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, I know that you currently for the parish you serve are, are doing that for them. Um, I know that that's true. And I know that in your new parish, as you move into that, um, you'll really bless them with your presence as well. So I'm really, really excited. Well, thank for that. you. Yeah, of course. And 
Uh, for those of you who are listening, like I said, if you want to follow along with um, with Bob's TikTok and uh, see him speak out on more issues like similar to ones that we discussed, I'm going to link his TikTok handle down below. Um, it's a really funny handle. It's uh, like not head, right? <laughs> Not I had, had 9620. Uh, 9620. <laughs> you can't miss and, it. And actually, you know, I, I chose that as my username when I first got onto TikTok because I'm a woodworker. Um, oh. That's kind of what I do to relax. And I honestly, if I was, I was convinced at the time that if I ever made any kind of TikTok content, it would be woodworking videos. Um, oh, wow. Thus the username. Instead, you know, I've become this loudmouth knucklehead who just keeps, you know, poking the bear on people who yeah. want to put God in a box. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it still kind of fits, I guess. But yeah, absolutely. I think that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, go follow him and and follow him in his quest to call people out. Um, and if you are a person who is struggling with feeling like you don't belong in a church setting or that you to use Bob's words earlier, you, the church has called you an abomination or anything like that. Um, you know, take Bob's words to heart. You are loved, you are beloved. Um, and you are not an abomination. Um, reach out to Bob. He can absolutely help you with this. And, um, and we're just happy that those who listened today, we're here to listen and we hope that you're blessed and healed with this, um, with this conversation and just know you're not alone in, uh, in figuring out how the church is going to get better because the goal is that it will. Um, Amen. my goal with this podcast is not to bash religion. It's to have these conversations around religion and figure out how it can be a space that it's meant to be. Um, so I'm, I'm just so, I'm just so happy that you were here, Bob. I'm just so happy that you, you came and talked with me today. So thank you again. Thank you for the invitation. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>